This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so immaculate that it cannot be utterly destroyed. By the host of this show, John Syracusa, I'm Dan Benjamin. We'd like to say thanks to today's sponsor, Sound Studio 4 from Feltip and MailChimp.com. More about them coming up as the show goes on. This is episode number 25, and bandwidth for this show has been provided by Midas Green Technologies, virtual private servers submerged in oil. Really, you can check them out at MidasGreenTech.com. Broadcasting live and direct from the closet. In so many ways. Oh, oh well, different topic. So how are you? Speaking of topics, we got some FU, don't we? We do. Uh, just a little bit today. Okay. Uh, I, someone in the chat room did come up with something to talk about for the main topic. Oh, good, because uh, we're rel- we're out of topics. Yeah, but I think it will be a short one. But it's something that we mentioned on a past show. But anyway, follow up first. Uh, so last show we talked a little bit about uh, WebOS. Sometimes I feel like I want to say that as WebOS. I don't know how. <laughs> I think Palm says WebOS. But anyway. They do. Uh, we talked about Palm and their chances uh, as a mobile platform and... I talked about how I like them, but how their stuff was always seemed to be slow. And then I said I couldn't understand why it was slow. And somebody on Twitter uh, was telling me that it was slow because they use web technologies. Now, I thought I had expressed in my complaints that I understood that they use web technologies for their API. But apparently I did it in too subtle of a manner, just mentioning WebKit and not going whole hog into it. So I, I figured I would clarify. So the API for writing applications on WebOS is uh, built on top of JavaScript and HTML. Now, it doesn't mean you're writing web applications that would run in a web browser. It just means that the underlying stack that's running your stuff is WebKit. So you write a JavaScript code to a JavaScript API, uh, and that runs on top of WebKit, and I believe all their views are HTML, but I don't know if that's really exposed. But but anyway, the bottom line is that the, the thing that's running your GUI application is under the covers WebKit, even though you're not programming like web programming. And uh, that's one of the reasons everyone says that it's slow. And like I said, may, that could be the reason. Maybe there's just too many layers. I said there's too many layers in the layer cake with WebKit on the bottom. You know, Because every time you add another one of those layers to the, to the technology stack, you have a little bit of a performance hit because you're writing code way up at the top and then it runs on something else and that runs on something else and then eventually you get all the way down to the thing that runs on the CPU. And the closer you are to that CPU, the more efficient you can be in theory. Uh, the reason I didn't just say, well, WebKit's slow and it's always going to be slow, therefore WebOS is always going to be slow is because that's not how technology works. Things that are too slow to be practical eventually become practical because technology advances and then eventually they become good enough. And we saw exactly the same thing that happened with Mac OS X where compositing graphics where everything on the screen is composited where you don't have any direct drawing to the video buffer, that was too slow for, for, for decades and eventually it became viable but still annoyingly slow in Mac OS X. Uh, but Apple stuck to their guns and eventually now today it is not only viable but it's perfectly acceptable and no one would want anything different. So... I assume that WebOS will have, if they stick around long enough, will have will benefit from the same type of transition. Technology will get better, the software will get better, and eventually their hit, their performance hit for using web technologies will go away. Now, I could say that that might, I feel like that might already be happening right now because the things that feel slow on WebOS, it seems like they could be accelerated in. In, with current technology, like uh, one of the examples that I've heard but have not seen, and since I'm not an iOS developer, I'm not breaking an NDA, I've heard that 
there's better scrolling capabilities in iOS 5 and WebKit. Like if you make a web, uh, a web view or web application and you want the scrolling to feel as smooth as it does in, uh, you know, in a real uh, Cocoa view, well, apparently Apple has some done some stuff where there's some WebKit settings where you can say, this is a scrollable view. Don't try to write your own custom JavaScript code to simulate our scrolling momentum and all that stuff. We just have a little flag that you can flip to say this is scrollable and we will do all that momentum stuff for you. And supposedly it feels much, much better. Uh, that type of thing, presumably WebOS is either already doing or plans to do. But that, that's the type of thing you can do to make web technology, even with current hardware, feel almost as fast as, uh, as native stuff. Or maybe even faster in some cases. It depends on what you do. So I, I, that's why I th- said I didn't understand why WebOS is so slow. Not because I don't understand that they have more, you know, a, a higher level of abstraction they're working with, but just that it seems like these are solvable problems and, in fact, are being solved by other people who aren't using the web as their primary development platform. So if anyone would be motivated to work out solutions to these problems, it would be Palm, you know. Uh, but from what I've been able to uh, determine from playing with recent Palm devices, they're still sluggish. Now, I haven't played with a touchpad yet, but I have played with Pre and Pre 2, and they are not iOS caliber in terms of responsiveness. And is that that's a deal breaker for a lot of people? That's not why the platform is not successful. And whether it's not it's a deal breaker for people, I mean, I, I certainly know a lot of people who who have Palm devices because among tech nerds, if you don't like everything that Apple does, Palm seems like the next best Appleish solution. Uh, but yeah, the lack of responsiveness is a turnoff to uh, a lot of people. And in general, responsiveness is a big way to make people feel comfortable with your with your product even if they don't understand that's why they like it uh you see a lot with the ipad people are attracted to the ipad because it feels like things happen faster there than they do on their crappy pcs so if you give someone with a an 800 pc you give them a 500 ipad which is vastly less powerful and vastly less capable they will tell you that it feels faster than their 800 pc simply because their pc is bogged down with crapware or everything takes a long time to launch or they're waiting for the hard drive to read bits off spinning platters you know that perception, even if not articulated by the customer, breeds uh, loyalty. Uh, so Palm definitely needs that. In addition to many other things that they need, like you know, more developers, more software, better hardware, blah blah blah. But well, yeah. shouldn't they have access to all of that stuff now? Now that HP owns them, shouldn't they have essentially unlimited resources at their disposal? Certainly more than they had before. Unlimited. But, but money doesn't design products. People design products, and you have to convert that money into people who can do a good job. And as you can imagine, the the competition for the talent needed to make good mobile operating systems and software is, you know, it's probably scarce these days because everybody wants it. Google's trying to hire you. Apple's trying to hire you. HP's trying to hire you. Microsoft, it's, you're in demand if you are good at that. And uh, that's, that's a challenge from a staffing perspective. I think a lot of those guys are using Perl. Write stuff in Perl. I don't know. Maybe some people do in the build system, writing some crappy Perl. I think I've complained about this before, but every Apple does use a lot of Perl, and every time I peek into one of their installer packages and look at the Perl that's part of the installation process of some piece of software, it's not great. Uh, you know, obviously, not everyone is expected to be an expert in every language, but if it's your job to write Perl, even if it's just part of your job, I feel like you should buy a book and learn about the language and, you know have some minimum level of competence. Uh, did I ever tell the story about the uh, the one Perl bug that caused a version of iTunes not to install for me? 
No, let's hear it. So I forget how long. This was a long time ago, but it wasn't a Mac OS X era. So they had, I think it was an iTunes installer. And inside the installers, if you do right-click, show package contents, you can see little resources that are in there. And, and some of the resources are like this pre-install and post-install scripts, which are sometimes written in Perl. Sometimes they're shell, sometimes they're Python. They're all sorts of things. So the power of Unix. Uh, so I, I forget if I was still installing on top of the system Perl. I think I had since learned not to replace the system Perl. By the way, that's a lesson for everybody. If you have Mac OS X and you want to use a newer version of Perl, do not touch the system Perl. Install into the user local. So I believe I had done that. I, do you I use homebrew that for that, or do you do it from scratch? No, I compile from source. Okay. Um, but one thing I had done since this was my shell was I had put user local at the beginning of my path in front of user bin and all that other stuff, right? So I'm getting my Perl, and so was the installer that was running, uh, because I think I'd put it in like a, that system environment thing. It's like dot system environment something or other, or dot global properties. There's some file you can put in your home directory which will influence the environment, not just of your login shell, but of any program that, that runs, sure. basically any, any process spawned from the login window. Uh, so when I double-click this installer, it would bounce in the dock once or twice and then disappear. And that would happen every time. And I eventually tracked it down to the fact that the installer, I guess it was the pre-install script, or some part of the installer was running a Perl script, which was dying because it was using my new version of Perl instead of the old version of Perl. This is why you should never do, you should never get your custom installed version in front of that. But the reason it was dying when I eventually looked at the script was that it was doing a string comparison. Well, first of all, it was doing all sorts of horrible things like running shell commands with variables interpolated into strings with no quoting around them. So I guess, you know, better hope you don't have any spaces. That was actually a bug. I think at one point they had a bug where an installer would recursively delete one of your drives if it was named the same as the drive you intended to, to install on, but with a space. So if you had drive foo and drive foo space bar and you tried to install on top of foo and erase it, it would, it would you know, initiate a, a remove command that would do remove dollar sign blah and dollar sign blah would expand to foo space bar. So it would expand into remove foo and then also bar. And it would say bar not found, but it would then recursively remove foo. Anyway, it was full of that stuff, but it also had a string comparison that said, a dollar sign blah EQ something else. And EQ is Perl's string comparison operator. It has separate operators for numeric comparison and string comparison because 1.0 equals equals 1, but 1.0 does not EQ 1 because it's right. string, the same number. <laughs> uh, so they had written the EQ operator in all caps, capital E, capital Q. And this is the first time I'd ever seen this in my entire life because the operator is lowercase eq. And I said, this thing, this script shouldn't even compile. How, how, does, how is it possible that this thing even compiles? Because the operator is lowercase eq. Well, it turns out in very old versions of Perl, which at that time, Mac OS time was shipping with a very old version of Perl, you could use capital EQ and the parser would choke it down and figure out that you meant lowercase eq. But in my later version of Perl, it would just reject that as a syntax error and say, yeah, you can't, there's no capital EQ operator. It's supposed to be lowercase eq. So that that shows somebody didn't even crack a book and say, what is a string comparison operator? Because no book ever tells you to do it in all caps. Someone just misremembered what that operator was. They typed it in all cap. It happened to execute, and they, they went with it. And that does not give me faith that the people writing Perl code for these installers are sort of up on their game. And, and, and it's not just limited to Perl. I, I, like I said, I've seen shell scripts and stuff like that that assume there won't be spaces in any paths or assume there won't be spaces in volume names or other dangerous things like that that are just, you know, Unix and shell programming 101, don't do this. You're just asking for bugs. Uh, how did we get onto that topic? Oh, you made some snide comment about Perl, and that's how we got onto it. 
But anyway, that's that's my story about the the uh, iTunes installer and, and Pearl. I, I haven't looked recently. I'm assuming they're getting better, but but geez, you know. Surprising that they even use Pearl for that at all. You'd think they'd use some, you know, a more modern language like Ruby. No, because you wouldn't want to use Ruby because Pearl Pearl is basically Unix distilled. But they have a Unix operating system and they want to do they, they want to basically use shell scripting, but no one likes shell scripting because it sucks. Like it's you know, it's, it's a big mishmash of stuff. Their conditional operators are actually little executables named left square bracket that's really the test command and there's all sorts of inane business to to deal with for uh, bash and uh, born shell script and stuff like that. So I don't want to use shell script because it's too primitive and too annoying, right? Uh, but they do want to do basically shell scripty type stuff, but they also would like to have the ability to call Unix system functions. So, you know, the, the typical, you want to call stat, you want to call, uh, you know, the equivalent of fopen, unlinked or remove files. You basically want access to the system library. So Perl gives you the shell scripting stuff you want for just basic shell scripting stuff, but it also gives you access to the underlying Unix library. So you don't have to shell out to MV to rename a file. You can just call the rename command, you know? Uh, you can shell out and use it just like a shell script if you want, but half the things you might shell out to do, like you know, grepping through something or renaming a file or deleting a file, you don't need to fork an exec something to accomplish because you can just make the system call that that executable is going to call for you. Uh, Python has similar things, so does Ruby, but they wrap them in their own little libraries that eventually under the covers do this stuff, but if you know Unix systems programming, you already know what the functions are called, the orders of, of the, the arguments and stuff like that. So for people who are used to doing automation on Unix, Perl is a more natural fit than looking up Ruby and figuring out, okay, the, the file object, what are the operations I can perform on that and which one is, you know, you know what I mean? Same thing with Python. Whereas if you don't have that Unix background, who, you know, learn, find and learn the Ruby library for file manipulation and learn or in, you know, forking processes and stuff like that. Or learn the Python equivalent. But if you know Unix, you know fork, you know exec, you know system, all those sorts of uh, commands. So that's why I think they use Perl. It's the right tool for the job. It's just not being wielded in a competent manner sometimes. Mm. So the next follow-up thing is we talked about Final Cut Pro 10 on the last show a little bit. Uh, and someone tweeted, I think it was today. This was Jim. I'm going to try this last name. Zajkowski? Z-A-J-K-O-W-S-K-I. And I mentioned, uh, I was talking about using Final Cut Pro in the classroom and if it could get into the classrooms and sort of train the next generation of video editors, that it would be successful in the market simply because they'd be familiar with it and wouldn't, they wouldn't be stuck on the fact that it's not like 7 because they never learned 7. They just learned this new one and if it really is better, they will, they'll like it and take it into their professional work with them. And uh, his tweet was, uh, I'll quote here, we teach Final Cut Pro 10 to our classrooms of deploying more or less insanely bad. And then he's quoting, uh, he makes like a quote here trying to say that this is the message from Apple. Here are 150 codes for the App Store. Good luck. Because remember, the Final Cut Pro 10 is only available in the App Store. So if you want to sort of get a volume license, I think they have a thing where you can pay the money. But what they give you in exchange is a bunch of App Store codes, apparently. Which sure. you then have to go on to each machine, open the App Store, click the little redeem link, enter in the, uh, the code... And then it starts downloading in that machine. That's a manual process. You really don't want to have to do it 150 times. That's not how, quote-unquote, enterprise software deployment is supposed to work. Um, now, when I saw that, I thought it was kind of a shame. Most people who don't have a job taking care of lots and lots of computers tend not to think about these issues, and apparently Apple doesn't think about them too much either. 
But I wouldn't blame this idiocy on the App Store because part of the promise of digital distribution is supposed to be a server-side awareness of who owns what, right? So it's not, it's not the fact that they've gone, instead of doing retail boxes, they've gone digital only. That's not the problem. It's the fact that they went digital only and are not taking advantage of one of the big reasons that you go digital only. You want, the, the whole point would be you, you, you'd ideally give them your money and it would say, if the server would then know, okay, you, whatever corporation or whatever person are entitled to 150 licenses, and then you'd like to be able to say, okay, just install that on these 150 machines and it would, it would automatically do it because it knows, okay, well, uh, the server knows how many copies I have and I'll download it onto this machine and that, that takes away one copy, you know what I mean? I was thinking of an example, something like Steam does this a lot better, where Steam knows what you own, and Steam knows if you get a new PC, you can sign in with your Steam account, and it says, oh, you already own this piece of software, or, you know, I don't know if Steam cares if it's already installed on another place or not, but in theory, this is, they've got all the information to provide a much better experience than going from machine to machine with with, uh, physical media, or even a better experience than taking an installer package and using Apple's tools to try to spot that installer package on elsewhere. You could just instruct all the individual machines to pull from the App Store using your credentials that say, okay, here's, here's the license under which I'm supposed to be able to have a copy of this thing. Go and pull from the, the server. And you could say, App Store, I'm Computer X, and I would like one of the 150 licenses. And it would give it to you, and it would install Final Cut Pro for you, and then it would you know, decrement the, the number of licenses that you have. All right, you don't even need to be that draconian. You could just say... I know you have a license here, you go install it, and then at some point later there could be some sort of lazy audit type thing that checks that makes sure you're not running more than 150 copies at once or whatever. Uh, so another case of Apple not understanding what's good about digital dis- distribution or all the good things about digital distribution. They, they did the same thing with the iTunes where for years and years until very recently, until iTunes match, if you bought a song from them and then lost it, tough luck. Even though they know you bought it, and even though they can confirm that you don't have another copy of it elsewhere when they had DRM and all their music, you, you know, the only thing you could do is write to support and beg them. I, you know, my whole hard drive got deleted. Please, I bought $100 worth of music. Can I please have my music again? And that was, a one, you know that was like I, a one-time thing, like once in a lifetime that was allowed. Yeah, and it's, that's just, the, it's just ridiculous. You're, not, that's, you're squandering one of the big advantages of digital, digital distribution. And that was, that was part of like the record company's deal where they only wanted one download because they were insane old men and they thought download was a scary thing. Well, they can only have one download and that's it because that'll stop piracy. They were idiots. You know? So it's not totally Apple's fault there. But here it is Apple's fault because there's no record company they're negotiating with. Final Cut Pro 10 is their software and they made the App Store without this infrastructure for easy ability to track who owns what and have volume licenses and, you know, I mean, even if they were going to say, well, we have a much better solution for digital distribution, but you need to have Lion because only the Lion App Store app knows how to like auto connect and ask, you know, or the, the new version of Apple Remote Desktop maybe can tell all the machines, go get your software. I'm telling you, you know, it, again, it's better than taking the, having Apple Remote Desktop, which is what it can do now, take an installer package and splat it onto each machine from the server. You could just tell each one to ask Apple for the software that it's entitled to and it would pull it down and install it. Yeah. But so these are all very these are all very enterprisey things. Uh, it's not even so much enterprisey, but I, again, I go back to when I worked at the, the uh, ebook store, uh, Palm Digital Media, which was earlier Peanut Press. They did one of the the first and was at one time the biggest electronic book download store. And one of the headlining features from day one was never lose your stuff when you buy it. We have a page on on the site called your bookshelf, and it shows everything you ever bought. And at any time. 
if you want to re-download or, or you know, download your stuff from wherever you happen to be, go to the, your bookshelf page and download your stuff. That's the, you know, it's, it's not physical books. We don't have to ship it to you and forget it. We keep track of everything we know you bought. And at any time, if you want it again, you can get it. So that's, it's, it's not an obscure enterprise feature. We weren't selling into enterprises. We were just trying to sell to consumers and say, this is better than physical media because it, you don't have to keep track of it. If you lose it, so what? Come download it again. It's yours forever. You bought it. And it's digital, so we can just give it to you whenever. Uh, the distribution of apps onto machines seems kind of enterprisey, but it's just an, a natural extrapolation of digital downloads the way they should actually work. And again, Steam does it much better than Apple does, where no matter what machine you're on, if you get a new PC, download Steam, install it, sign in, you can get all your stuff. You know? and, and you know what? They even do it in a cross-platform way. Yeah, you buy it on one thing, and then you get a Mac, install Steam, sign in. You, anything on those pieces of software that's available for the Mac, you can download. That's why people love Steam so much. Yeah. I, I don't want to buy games not outside Steam, because Steam takes away all the hassles. I've got Portal 2 sitting right here. Never launched it. It's pretty sad. Well, I don't well, have a mouse. You'll get time. It was supposed to be your reward for moving to Austin once you get settled, but I guess it's taking longer than expected. Yeah, I'm not settled, Dan. I don't even have a mouse. I was told it, it would be better to play it with a mouse. Yes, you, you need a mouse. So I've just been playing Minecraft. If you have time to play Minecraft, start playing Portal. I don't have a mouse. Uh, well, is it still in storage somewhere? Is that why? The mouse? Yeah. Yeah, they're in storage, and they'll be here in another week and a half. All right, well, you can hold out for can that. Can you do multiplayer on that? I have not tried the multiplayer. Like, I, I play Portal for the single-player experience. People have said that the cooperative two-player is fun, but I don't know. It's cooperative. It's not, you know, you know, it's not deathmatch. You're not running around. Yeah, deathmatch wouldn't really make sense. Yeah, just portaling people away from you. Yes. Kind of silly. Well, our first sponsor this week is Sound Studio 4. I love this app. It's an easy-to-use Mac app for recording and editing digital audio on your computer. You can do anything with this, from digitizing old tapes and vinyl records to recording live performances, podcasts, whatever it is. And you can edit them, too, with crossfades. You can tweak the levels and EQ uh, whatever it is that you want to do, really this app will let you do it. And then you can take this high-quality master that you've created and you can save it out into a, a ton of file formats, AIF, WAV, MPEG-4, AC, or John Syracuse's absolute favorite, Og Vorbis. Uh, this has been the Mac's most popular audio program for many years. And uh, the guys are continuing to update this all the time, adding new features. I mean, it's a 64-bit app. It's, it's just awesome. Uh, so you can find Sound Studio 4, uh, at felttip.com slash ss, as well as in the Mac App Store. Highly recommend this app. Please go check it out. Uh, so my next bit of follow-up is uh, we talked about Google Plus a lot on the last show, and I saw a story go by this week that Google plans to retire the Blogger and Picasa brand names. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw that this morning, actually. Yeah, Not a surprise. So- Who's that a surprise to? Well... Now they didn't Blogger. say they're getting rid of. They didn't say they're getting rid of the software. They said they're retiring the names, and it's all just going to sort of fold under Google Plus, I guess. Yeah, there's there's this phenomenon where promising young companies get purchased by Google and then either never heard from again, or their pace of innovation and and releasing comes to a halt, or other sorts of bad things like the idea that Google buys companies to protect themselves from possible competitors, to gain talent, but not so much to continue doing what that company was doing. Uh, Although sometimes they will say that they will. We want to get this company, and now that we're part of Google, boy, we'll be able to make Blogger the best blogging platform ever. 
or will just kind of stand still while their blogging platforms do interesting things. Um, Picasa, was that in-house Google or did they buy it? I think they bought Picasa. Pretty sure they bought it. Yeah, I don't use Picasa. I tried a couple of times, uh, especially when they when they had face recognition before iPhoto was. I tried bringing some photos into Picasa to see the face recognition stuff. It, work. it worked okay. Yeah, it, it worked about as well as the iPhoto one, but the rest of the Picasa experience was not up to the iPhoto level of polish for me. And I also didn't like the the Google software updater that gets this little clause into your system and you can't ever get rid of it. And it's constantly popping up saying, "Hey, some Google app you have needs to be updated." And I was like, I'm not even running any Google apps. So you're just in a persistent demon process and then you hunt it down and find the launch D item that's making it launch and try to kill it. But the next time you install anything from Google, it's back. And that turned me off. It was too like a real player-ish. Kids ask your parents about a real player. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> Blogger and Picasa, retiring, <laughs> retiring the names is, uh, is making me realize something that I didn't realize when I just tried Google+. Plus Because Google+, Plus came out, I got the invite, I started playing with it, and I didn't read all the stories about it. And like uh, Steve Levy, Levy, I don't know how you pronounce his last name. Uh, I'll, go another, with, I'll go with Levy. Another old school uh, Mac guy from way back. In fact, I've got an autographed copy of his book, uh, Insanely Great, about the creation of the Macintosh. So you met him, and he signed your book, but you don't know how he to pronounce not, his name. He did not sign my book. I got a signed copy of the book from the bookstore. <laughs> you know when the authors like sign a whole bunch of books, and they leave them on the shelf? Like, no, like, I didn't. Like, I, I, or whatever? I didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I do have a signed copy of that book. It's a little bit rose-tinted glasses kind of about the early days of the Mac development. But anyway, he's, he's an old Mac guy. He spent a year, apparently, on and off, interviewing people at Google about Google+. And it frames it, his story frames it as sort of a bet the company type of thing where Google was realizing that it's not enough to just be the place where people search for stuff and you sell ads and things. Everything online was going social, so they needed to not just have a social aspect or a separate social thing like Buzz or whatever, but they have to reform the company in the image of not in the image of Facebook, but more people-centric rather than data-centric because that's how people seem to be relating online. So and yeah, Google, look at look at the Google Plus URLs that were given. Yeah, that, that's I, the thing you, you just probably like that. You probably that's your probably favorite yeah. feature of Google Plus. I was told that that's temporary. There was some thread about that in I saw on Google Plus with some official Google. Right, so here's here I'm, before you get into it. Here's what we're talking about right now. If you were to go to your profile or your friend's profile on Google Plus. It'll say plus.google.com slash, and it'll have, is it a 16-character string of numbers? Is it 18? I think it's like more than that. I think it's like 40 or something. It's long. <laughs> it's a long, long uh, string of numbers slash posts. So, so you know, my URL is plus.google.com slash 158749. I mean, it's like, remember the one where Data was setting a passcode, and he just reads the passcode, and it's like a 1,000 characters long, and he's, he does it just like a, a very good Android would, reciting it perfectly. Uh, it's like that. And it just, it's so weird that that's, like I get everybody, when I tweeted about this, when I tweeted about this, I got a ton of responses from people saying, well, go to gplus.to and you can, you can get a, a nice Google Plus URL. Well, it's not a Google Plus URL. It's a URL shortener that all it does is redirect. So you you enter in your Google Plus number, your 40-string character, and then you tell it the name that you want that to redirect to. And essentially, then you've grabbed that name. Well, I could have entered your name. There's no checks there. There's nothing that prevents me from 
making up a name or using yours if you don't happen to have already gotten it. It's a third-party thing. It's not run by Google. Other people will say, oh, well, just use, a, you know, Google Profiles will work. So go to profiles.google.com slash your name. Well, that only works if you actually had already set up a Google Profile prior to Google+, Plus, which ate Google Profiles. And, and I didn't, so that's not there. So you've got this crazy... URL, it just shows, it just shows that as much as Google is trying to be more personal, that they've, they, this is an epically huge failure of being more social. Oh, I want to check out your Google Plus. Who are you? Oh, well, I guess you could search for my name or maybe you could search for my email, but hang on, I'm not sure. Did I use my Gmail address or my other one? I can't remember. I I think Google would say that they do want you to search, but first let me tell you what I I recall reading was terrible. If you did the profile thing before Google Plus launch and you picked a profile name, the fact that that profile name doesn't work is just because Google Plus hasn't integrated it yet. The plan is, from what I understand, to make whatever you picked as your Google profile name work. But what if I picked a Google profile name with a different account on Google than I used with this one? Well, there there is a link somewhere in there where it says, do you want to have a better URL? Click this link and you can change it. And you click the link and it leads you to a screen that has no place for you to change it. And the explanation <laughs> for that was that they just haven't finished yet. Basically, so I haven't even found that screen. Google Plus is not <laughs> completely baked yet. I'm surprised it doesn't have a beta label. Someone on, on Twitter was saying, you know, well, it's not like Google Plus is beta. Well, well they're calling it, uh, what was it? We were talking about this on another show. Uh, they're calling it a, wasn't beta. It was like a live test or what was the chat room help me out here what are they calling it it doesn't matter what they call it the bottom line is it doesn't matter what they call it gmail was called a beta for how many years two years limited field test they're calling it a field test thank you guys so yeah so again i i wouldn't call even though they don't say beta it's clear that this is not completely done but still isn't that isn't that the one thing that you really want about only people who care about URLs are geeks like us, though. Everyone else is just no. Search. That's not true. What if my Twitter ID was one nine eight seven five four four one seven W Q R R two seven five? You'd be shocked at the number of people who do not know how to get to someone's Twitter page. They nobody knows how to type twitter.com slash username except for people listening to this show. I guarantee you, they just go to Twitter and they search or something. Really? They, they have yes. That's, that's how we're that's getting to work. The, the other, the other thing I'll point out is their URLs. Even though it has that big giant number in there. It's googleplus.com slash big giant number slash posts and big giant number redirects to slash posts. There's no question mark, no query string. There's no fragment. They don't yeah. have that stupid hash mark exclamation. Yeah, point. those are ter- That's the worst. So it could have been worse. This isn't, you know, you want to go real old school. There's no like J session ID Java crap. You know, the URLs can be much worse than what they have here. And yes, it is annoying they have a number instead of a username, but I assume they will fix it. Uh, but you're angry about it, I can see. I'm not happy with it because it just represents to me the the fact that no matter how pretty you make it, uh, behind the scenes, Google is a robot. It's not a human being. I think you are reading too much into that. False. Much too much. False. All right. But anyway, let me get to this. Uh, to the blogger and Picasso thing. So the the thing I was trying to get at was that in theory, and I'm seeing a little bit of this in practice, this whole effort is basically trying to turn the entire company around. That's why this Google Plus is integrated into so many other aspects of their business. They want people to think more about themselves, their relationships, and their friends when they think about Google versus thinking about that search box and the thing that leads you elsewhere. Uh, And retiring these other names is a natural part of that because they're trying to get... They've picked Google Plus as their brand and they're trying to get unified branding on this new message and every other brand that they have out there 
that's related to people or relationships, like Blogger, here's my stuff that I say, Picasso, here are my pictures. They want to keep those features probably, but they don't want to distract from the Google Plus brand. So uh, the bottom line is that Google Plus seems like a much bigger deal to the company than it may initially seem based on their tepid Facebook clone with circles thing that you've been hearing about people using. Uh, and by the way, people who are who are asking for invites or who don't have invites or are upset, you're not missing anything. It's it's a half-finished piece of software. You'll get to join it soon enough. Think about when everyone else was on Gmail and you couldn't get an invite, and eventually you got on Gmail. It's email, right? It, it, what Google would probably hope is that it is less exciting than you think once you get on it because they just want it to become a natural part of your life and not this amazing new interesting thing. Like It's not supposed to be a novelty. They want it to be integrated into your life the same way Gmail and Google Search are. It's just another part of your day. Uh, so it will come to you eventually. Uh, there are no more invites. As far as I know, nobody has them. Right. For a brief period of time, they did have them, but apparently they were being too widely spread. So if I add somebody in my circle to a circle right now, and I, I enter in their email address, that's not really inviting them. That's just putting them in. And what does that do? Yeah, there were a bunch of people saying, well, if you tag someone in a photo, they get an automatic invite. If you put someone in a circle, they get an invite. Yeah, there was all sorts of back doors when they first took away the invites that were by somehow attaching them to uh, some activity of your own in Google+, they would get a legitimate invite. I think they've stopped all those little holes with the invites from escaping, but... Uh, because I tried them a few times and it didn't work. But uh, luckily I gave – the one invite I actually did give was to my wife on the day I signed up. And that invite worked for her and then they quickly took away the invite. So for anyone asking, I have no invites to give out. Nobody has any invites to give out. I'm sure there will be more when they're back. Just be patient. You, yeah, wouldn't, you wouldn't be saying it quite so uh, – in quite such a, a, a self-contented way if you were one of the people that wanted to try it. And well, let me think. Most of the time when I'm not in on an invite thing, I'm like, I'll see it when it – comes out. More, That's what you say, thing, but you don't really feel that only, way. Because I'm usually not in a lot of invites. One thing I didn't get an invite for, I was annoyed, and I forget what it was. I can't remember now. It wasn't Gmail, because I had to wait a while for that invite. Uh, there was some service that most people wouldn't care about, and it was the one that I was annoyed that I didn't get an invite. I'm more annoyed when I don't get an invite to an obscure service that only like five people in the world will actually like, and I'm one of the five, and I didn't get an invite, versus something like Google+. Plus. It's supposed to be for everybody. And if I didn't happen to get one, so what? I would just wait. Uh, so yeah, we'll try not to talk about Google+, Plus for the people who can't see it. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm assuming I do like the it. little animations when you add somebody to you. Have you tried adding somebody to one of your circles, and they're already in there? I haven't tried that. Try one. that. Watch the animation. See what happens. How many circles do you have? Do you have like three, or do you, do you use the default ones? I have. I I don't use the default ones. I have. I haven't deleted all the default ones. I've got one, two, three, ten circles. But some neat, of them are it's a neat idea. Default. Like I have a following circle because it was a default, but it's got zero people in it. <laughs> uh, my Apple Nerds one is filling up fast. Now, when you when you put people into your Apple Nerds uh, group, do, it depending on their setting, it could notify them that you've done that, right? Or I do don't know. I've just been putting people in. I don't know if it's sending notifications. I apologize if it is. I try not to do things that make <laughs> people send. I don't even know if there's a setting for that. We're all just learning here. We're all just figuring out how this works. So, and one more thing on Google+. Plus. Some uh, Another person on Twitter was talking to me about uh, Google scaling. You know, the, the, the fact that I always say they're so great at operations, but now they had to limit their invites. And as I mentioned on the last show, limiting invites may be part of how 
they scale. Now, someone else was complaining that they were getting bad responses from the server, like overcapacity, you know, the equivalent of the fail whale. I have not seen a single thing in Google Plus that has not allowed me to do what I wanted. No server errors, no delays, no messages, no nothing like that. Uh, some people have, apparently. But the, the idea that because Google is good at operations mean they can launch a brand new product this pervasive on day one and scale to 100 million people within the first five hours. That's not the way scaling works. You build it to scale so that when 100 million people eventually are let in by you at, at a reasonable pace, you don't have to rewrite the application. Yeah. And a counterexample of this would be Twitter where they built it it built it in an expedient manner. I don't know what they used originally. I think they just used Rails. Did they use MySQL in the back end? Whatever they I'm used, sure it, it was. was built. It was built in a conventional manner. And they had to rewrite it at least once, possibly multiple times during their scale-up because they, had, they hadn't built it to scale up to hundreds of millions of people. Google, everything they build is built to scale to hundreds of millions of people. That doesn't mean that on day one it supports 100 million people. You always have to work out the bugs, figure out where the bottlenecks are, but their infrastructure supports it. So there's, there's going to be no point in the next two months or whatever where they say, oh my God, we really screwed this up. We have to rewrite Google Plus from scratch because it, Twitter was basically rewritten from scratch at least once. Uh, possibly multiple times, and you could do that with Twitter because it's a simple enough service. But you can't really do that with Google Plus. That's what mean. That's what I mean when I say Google has the infrastructure to scale any product. You think of an idea like Google Buzz or even Wave, which had some performance difficulties. I, I, you know, if if they had decided to stick with that, their infrastructure would have supported it scaling to to millions of uh, of users. So everything they build has to pass that bar, and they have the infrastructure to make it work already. Uh, it's just a question of figuring out how best to deploy it on the infrastructure, and, and of course fixing bugs and stuff like that. Uh, so that's why they have to have a slow rollout instead of the big bang release. Because, I mean, they're, they're just fixing, you know, there's features that don't exist in the software, there's bugs in the software, and some of those bugs are going are to be performance related. But I guarantee you they will not entirely need to rewrite Google Plus in six months. And that's what I mean when they, their operations are ready to go at web scale for any type of application, which is impressive when you think about it because very few other companies, like a company can have the expertise to build a web scale application that scales to millions and millions of people. But it's much, it's much harder to make a generic infrastructure on top of which anyone can write any application they think of that also scales to millions of people. You know what I mean? Uh, because having the expertise to do, do a one-off, like to do what Twitter did, like Twitter has figured out how to make Twitter scale to millions and millions of people, right? But if you said, great, Twitter, well, I have this great idea. I want to do something in it, and it works exactly like Google+. Can I build that on top of your infrastructure? They're going to say, no, because our infrastructure is designed for Twitter. It's not a general-purpose infrastructure for building web-scale applications. So... That's something that Twitter, for example, doesn't have uh, that Google does. Uh, sometimes it's a weakness for Google because when they buy these other companies and they bring them in-house, they say, okay, step one is you have to need to take your existing application and port it to our infrastructure because we're not going to run your crappy custom infrastructure built on whatever the heck you're using, PHP and some MongoDB thing off to the side and a bunch of EC2 instances. Whatever you're doing, scrap that. You've got to port your application to our platform. And that takes sometimes a year uh, that's a little bit too much kind of not invented here, drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, everyone has to conform to the Google way of doing things, and they pay the price for that. And that's you know when a company goes into Google and you don't hear from them for a year or nothing happens for a year, it's because they're too busy porting to the Google platform. Microsoft did the same thing. Remember with Hotmail, when they purchased Hotmail and they wanted to port Hotmail to Windows? Yeah. And that didn't work out so well, and they went back to Unix. Every company has that. Uh, I don't know. They're probably, they're probably on Windows now permanently, but... Uh, they did try to bring it to Windows way back in the day, and it didn't work out. Uh, and I guess they, I'm assuming they made another run at it and improved their server software. Now it is running on Windows. I don't know. Uh, but that, that idea of when, when you acquire a company, 
part of their assimilation is to take whatever technical stuff they did for their platform and port it to your platform as, you know, that's not, I, I don't know, if, but obviously the benefits of that are like get all the wood behind one arrow and just have everyone focusing in one direction and, and improvements to your infrastructure benefit all your products. But the downside is it's a big time suck for basically a lateral move. And if you're in a hurry, it's like, why did you buy this little company if they were fast and innovative and doing something interesting? You're now basically stalling them. And maybe that's fine if you really just wanted the talent and you just wanted to keep them from being a competitor. Uh, but it does seem to be a common, a common theme in uh, acquisitions of web companies. Like they, it's kind of like if you bought an application company. Uh, this doesn't really happen, but imagine if Apple bought an application that was written for a different platform and didn't run on the Mac at all. And they said, okay, well, step one is you have to take your code that you wrote and port it to Cocoa. And they're like, well, that's a whole other app practically. You bought us and our application only runs on Windows. And maybe you should have thought of that before you bought us. It's the same thing of Google buying company and saying, well, our app doesn't run on Google's infrastructure. It runs on our own infrastructure. And rewriting is like rewriting the whole thing. So why'd you even buy us? It seems less crazy because everyone's like, well, I see this through a web browser. And now when Google bought it, I'll see it through the same web browser. So what? there's no work there. Whereas if Apple bought a Windows application, we would expect, oh, it's going to take those guys a while to rewrite that because we know it doesn't run on Windows. Or we don't think about where do applications that we see through a web browser, where do they run? Because they run somewhere. They run on, they run on hardware in a data center that's set up with hardware and software infrastructure. Even though we don't see that, that's, it exists, you know? So I think when web companies are acquired, we just assume it'll be a smooth, seamless transition. But it's the same type of thing as uh, client-side software. It's just less visible to us. Invisible software. Invisible software decisions. Yeah, less visible anyway. If you work in server-side software, you can't help but think about like company X acquired company Y. Oh, geez, I wonder what company X had for their infrastructure and how well that's going to work with company Y. Sometimes the best acquisition can be when you get acquired by somebody who has no existing infrastructure or your infrastructure is better than theirs because then you do it. They don't even try to do the integration. Yeah, they just say, we're going to use your thing. Your thing is better than what we got. We're going to port our stuff to your thing. You know, there's actually, that's a a really kind of interesting point that you're making because a big part, I've had, I've I've sold two websites of note. I probably wouldn't need to mention anything before that, but the first one was Corked. Which I wrote the the I did the software engineering I guess you would call it the you know the development part and Dan Cedarholm did the design part of that and when we we wrote that in Rails and it was one of the first I guess I I don't know if well known is the right word but it was one of the first like big Rails sites that that was out there and. I remember when we were talking with uh, some different companies that wanted to acquire it. It eventually uh, went to uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, but before him, we were talking to some other. Uh, let's just say there was a company in San Francisco and another in New York that we were talking to about it. And at that point, today Rails writing it in Rails. Oh, great! You wrote it in Rails. Good, good. Back then, it was like nobody really knew what it was. It was very early in the days of Rails, and it was it was like a liability. It was like a liability that that it was written in real. Oh, yeah, it was not in PHP. Can you can, can you rewrite it in PHP? <laughs> we got that question a number of times. Say no, but you can rewrite it in PHP if you right. want. Right, and that's that's the thing. It's, it's I said, well, why is that? What your current infrastructure is in? Is that what your other apps and things are in? Well, no, they're all in something different. Uh, but uh, we just figured PHP. You know, just doing that. 
I've been seeing those letters a lot in my InfoWorld magazine, so I figured, yeah, PHP. Right. They knew it. It was just that that was what they, yeah, they knew. Th- those, those examples of people, that's the worst part. People who have no infrastructure of their own but reject yours just because they haven't heard of it. So right. they're, they, they have nothing to bring to the table except fear and ignorance and will reject your... <laughs> but it's a good thing. point you make because for a lot of people... Th- they the automatic assumption is well you'll have to you'll have to convert it to whatever our infrastructure is well the the worst part of those situations is that the people who are selling the company are the people who own the company and usually aren't the people who are writing to the code and not the people who are wedded to the code so they don't really care like if after the acquisition and they get their big cash exit or whatever their golden handcuffs are to stick around for super. They don't care if, yeah, yeah, and as part of the deal, I'll have all my guys rewrite it in Java. Yeah, yeah. They just want to, that's their exit strategy. They just want to yeah. get their money and get out, and they're not crying over the fact that it was rewritten. And even when the people involved are tied to it. So, for example, there was a, well, I can't believe I can't remember his name. Someone in the chat room helped me. Uh, Hacker News Dude. Uh, you can help me, Dan. The, the guy who wrote news.ycombinator.com. Yeah, the ViWeb guy. I don't know. You think I'm good with names? I'm worse than you. Look this up. Chat room. Come on. They're on yes. a lag. They've got a, like a five Paul second Graham. delay. I'm sorry. I just blanked on his name. Paul Graham. Paul Graham. Uh, he so, didn't write the software. Well, no, I think he was, he's a big Lisp dude. And they wrote ViaWeb in Lisp as the first web store. And Lisp was their big technical advantage. Right, but he didn't That's write. It. I thought you meant the author of that, the software behind news.ycombinator.com. Oh, no. He runs. He's behind that. And he's well, if you y- had just said the Y Combinator guy, of course it's Paul Graham. Uh, anyway. The I, thought you wanted, I thought you were going to talk to me about like the guy who wrote the software that powered the thing. No, no. And, this, right. this is before he was rich and famous. He was a starving... Wait, I'm no. Paul Graham was born rich and famous. Everybody's always known who he was. I don't know. So he no. wrote he wrote uh, this web-based store way back in the day, and he wrote it in Lisp, uh, and he sold his company to Yahoo, and it became Yahoo Stores. Yahoo eventually rewrote... Yahoo? Yeah. yeah. They eventually rewrote all of his software, and did they write it? PHPC? Uh, Yahoo had its own infrastructure, and they stuck with Lisp for a while, but eventually, as he became separated from them, or maybe this was part of his separation, they ended up rewriting it. Um. And that is an example of even though the person who was responsible for selling the company, like he had ownership of the company and he was totally, he's totally a Lisp nerd. Like if you read his essays, he loves Lisp. He thought it was a big advantage. He sold the company and still he ended up getting rewritten. Uh, and, and Yahoo didn't even have a very good infrastructure at that point. They just rewrote it in basically a different language because they didn't have enough people who understood Lisp or whatever. So this can happen no matter what. Uh, but again, at the, at the end of the day, he did get his big exit and now he's a venture capitalist and he got to write all these essays about how Lisp was the big competitive advantage to his store, and that's why he's rich now and you're not, because he wrote a thing in Lisp. But then everyone who reads that will make some snide comment, well, if it was so great, why did they rewrite it? And he will say, well, they made a mistake doing that, and they will have a big debate, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, the infrastructure that runs your web-based application, is uh, it's very visible to the people who work on it, and it makes a big difference to, to the success of the product and the companies who are either being acquired and or making acquisitions. So the big Facebook so, announcement just uh, just came out. Facebook announcement. What is that? They um, basically they you can video call anybody who's on Facebook chat, one to one Skype video amongst yeah, Facebook we, contacts. Yeah, we talked about that last week. Is that they just just announced answer. just now just happened? You heard it yeah, here first. They're pretty fast, huh? 
You knew about it last week, though. You said they were doing some sort of deal with Skype. Yeah, yeah, I knew all about that. And there you go. Uh, so the last do you, do you use the Google Plus before that? Do you use the Google Plus Hangouts? Are you hanging out? I still have not tried it. I, again, I said it's probably not for me. I think it'd be great for the you. Idea, the idea of the I future. would so hang out with you on Google uh, Plus the, every day. The real, the real version of hanging out is more like what teenagers do where it's just like ambient. Whereas when, when adults do any video chat, I feel like they they feel like there's an obligation to, like it's a telephone, there's an obligation to interact with the person who's now on the video thing versus just, just taking the window with their video on it and chucking it off to the side and continuing to do what you're doing. Like, because if you're actually hanging out with somebody, you're not constantly staring at them and making eye contact and talking. You're just hanging out, you know? You know, you used to hang out when you were a teenager. You didn't have, you had no no place to go, nothing to do, no agenda, no you were just there together, hanging around. Where would you go when, when you were doing that? Where, like, what place? Would you be over someone's house or would you go somewhere? You didn't want to be at their house, right? Because their mom would be there. It'd be weird. Yeah, houses are good because there's basements and they had. Oh, I wasn't allowed to have video game consoles as a kid, so I would be over my friend's house who had video game consoles, and they would be in the basement, and you would be isolated. There. You know where we'd always wind up? We'd always wind up at Don Carter's. I don't know what that is. It's, it's, a, bowl, it's a bowling alley. That's no place Eating to be. Eating the greasy fries and disgusting. <laughs> this, is what, this is what happens when you live in Florida, I guess. So we had diners. Long Island has good diners. And they were open late. We had a Denny's. That's not a diner. No, it's not. It's <laughs> kind of <laughs> gross. Good. Denny's, come on. It's horrible. It was the one place you could go that would be open at 3 a.m. Yeah. Oh, didn't you have IHOP at least? Oh, no. Those were, well, yeah, but they were terrible in that area. Terrible. Denny's was like above, above, well, above an eye. I'm just saying, if you don't have real diners, uh, where I don't know where real diners are. I mean, they're not just in New York. I no, think. no. I think they have them everywhere except Metro, where I grew up. New York Metro has good diners, but there must be good diners in the rest of the country, too, somewhere. But probably not in the South. You just got Waffle House and uh, Denny's, I guess. The worst. All right. So the final bit of follow-up I have, this is a quick one. So uh, I've been spending my time since the last show besides working and you know taking care of the kids and making dinner and all that stuff, writing. And I've actually completed my Lion article. It's submitted to ours there, busily editing it. I've already made a couple of changes. This, again, just because I submitted doesn't it's mean it's still Still going in there and making little tweaks, fixing screenshots, updating a few words here and there. I hope they will be done editing it within a day or two. They'll send it back to me and I will incorporate my changes and then it will just be stewing in the cms waiting to hit the publish button meanwhile i will be frantically running around finding all the things i forgot to write about and trying to shove them in i will try to leave it alone because so I actually at some I, point I, I was gonna say i was gonna interrupt you and say i actually have a little tidbit of insider information about how you actually write your article i don't know if i should share that publicly or not then we just do a whole show about how no this this is this is specific to just to this article Our second sponsor today, uh, and by no means a second place sponsor, is MailChimp.com. These guys have done so much to support 5x5. We love them. They make it easy to design email newsletters. You can share these things on social networks. You can integrate with all the services you already use. You can design your own newsletters, or you can use the ones that are created by these really awesome, famous uh, web designers. They're all there. It's all free. And uh, they have tons of, of really cool integrations, too. They have something called Social Pro, which layers your mailing list with public social data. Uh, it's really, really cool. Google Analytics integrations, autoresponders, uh, iOS app integration. It's all, and it's all free. 12,000 emails a month to up to 2,000 subscribers. 
There has not been a better time to join MailChimp. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Sign up for free. And in doing so, you will be supporting this show. So thank you. So the article's in the CMS. It's in the CMS. It's ready to go. You're going to still be... It's not ready to go yet. They're still editing it. But yeah, I will try not to keep editing it. But I do have some stats about the article that I gathered before the show. Oh, let's hear them. To give an overview on this. So... uh, words of notes that I took. This is a rough estimate because I have notes in Simple Note, uh, which is a great application that I learned about from Gruber. That I use, I use Simple Note at WWDC because it has, a, it has an iPad interface, but it also has a web interface because I knew when I came back home, my wife would take her iPad back. And so uh, I can just pull up the Simple Note uh, application website and see all my notes, even though I wrote them on the iPad. So I, I took notes in Simple Note at WWDC, and I also have been taking notes for, I don't know, six months, a year, online uh basically as soon as i'm done with one os review and it's published and out the door i usually start a document with notes on the subsequent os and i'll start with like whatever my notes are what i think it's going to be and every time i learn some tidbit i'll add to it or whatever so i had about twenty thousand words of notes of those two sources combined that's mostly an outline form and by the way if people don't know this here's a little tip and trick for you if you open up text edit and you hold on the option key and hit tab it puts you into this really crappy pseudo outliner mode like if you, if you don't want to if you don't want to spend the money for omni outliner which is a real outline application and it's great you just want to use text edit option tab and then shift tab to uh, unindent that's what i do my show notes in for these shows too is the poor man's outlining mode uh, it's better than trying to do the outline yourself with just regular tabs option tab will give you the little bullets and indent block indent stuff for you and everything uh, so that's what my freehand lines notes are in so those notes combine twenty thousand words Screenshots taken. Uh, this is the number of, of screenshots I took on all the various machines. I've, I've been collecting them all in Dropbox. Dropbox has been a real aid to this writing process uh, versus the old way of me taking screenshots. Because, you know, if you have seven different hard drives and three different machines that you're running, the OS on you have to make sure you don't lose any screenshots and put them all together. Especially, I lost a couple screenshots even this time uh, when I would reformat and reinstall and forget that I was just writing over the screenshots I had taken in the previous install. This was before I had bothered to get Dropbox working online because there were some hacks you had to do. Uh, so once I got that up and running online, it made it a lot easier for me. Uh, I've taken 397 screenshots, totaling 214 megabytes for this review. Uh, images this, in the is, actual, this is amazing. Images in the article. This is how many of those 397 <laughs> actually made it into the article. Okay. Uh, and obviously they're not all visible. Some of them are like you click to make bigger and there's a separate image and stuff like that. 124. So... Uh, more than half, almost like a quarter of the articles. And that's a total of 25.3 megabytes, thanks to the magic of, you know, compression. Printed pages. If you were to view this article in the web browser in a single page and just print, uh, and I didn't actually print it, I just did print a PDF and looked how many pages it was. So it's 85, 8.5 by 11 pages. Oh, man. Uh, Number of links. This is a, also a rough estimate. I just did a, a search and replace to, to find out how many there are. 456 links. Uh, most, mostly to Simpsons quotes, though. There are no Simpsons quotes linked in this review. Sorry to disappoint. But there are some. Most to links Sweet. about Spock. Yeah. Number of times I've hit save since April 2011. And I'm, I'm measuring this because BB Edit makes backup uh, copies of your thing, you can configure it to make backup copies locally. Uh, I use this in addition to Time Machine just because, you know, why not have another backup? It does it sure. for free. So I just went into my backup directory and looked at how many copies of this document are in there. And I have 
2065 backup copies of this document wow. in my BB Edit backup folder since April. I think there were ones before that, but I think I might have done a backup purge at that point. And that's only from one machine. I did most of the writing on one machine, but occasionally I've written elsewhere, and those backup copies don't count. Uh, the number of words, I posted this to Twitter, 27,335. I think that's not a record for me. I think I went over that for the Tiger Review and a couple other ones. But the thing that makes... The thing that makes reviews feel long is that people are like, oh, how many pages is it? And what they want to know is how many links are there in the little number line at the bottom. But that's meaningless because those are not pages. Like, and again, there will be little links with number line at the bottom of this thing too. But they're not equal length. They're just kind of split roughly into sections. If one section seems like it's going on for too long, like you have to hit page down 17 times, so it's like, all right, split that guy and spread it out. I know people don't like pagination and I think you're doing it to get more page views, but honestly, for articles like this, it is not to get more page views. If you look at the if you look at the page view graph of how many people read page one, page two, page three, if you did it as a histogram, historically the review the, my reviews look like a big spike around page one, two, and three, then a gigantic drop off and a huge value in the entire middle, and then a big spike on the last page. Because people start reading it, realize it's boring, skip the last page, get the conclusion. Uh that's and there's a long tail of people who read the entire thing in the middle. So we're not splitting it up to try to get more page views because if we put it into three pages, we would get all the same page views because nobody reads the middle umpteen pages. Right. Uh, but the reason we split it up is because you know, well, ours splits things up because they sell uh, a premier subscription which lets you view articles all on one page. But honestly, looking at an article this big on all on one page is not a great experience because when if you're in the middle of reading unless you memorize the section where you were, when you like leave that browser and pull it up someplace else, you have to scroll to where you were again. Where was I? You're scrolling and scrolling and looking for it. Whereas if you remember, okay, I'm on page six, or even if you just bookmark page six, page six is not that long. You can say, okay, I was on page six somewhere. Let me figure out where I was in page six. So right. let, me, let, me add, let me ask you a question. Are you done with your stats yet? Are you going to make us hear all of them? That, that was the last stats of all. A friend of mine asked when I, when I told her that I had finished. She said, can you give me a 10-word review? Or 10-word synopsis so she doesn't have to read the whole thing. I did come up with a 10-word synopsis, but I don't know why I want to read it. Maybe I'll save it until after the review is published. I'll give my 10-word synopsis. Oh, I could have saved nice. all this time. Ten word. I actually did eight <laughs> words, but then I added two more at the end to round it out to 10. So I'll save that for, for the show after it's published. But okay. you'll have to remind me about that. I will. I certainly will. And I'm sure the chat room will, too. So here's yep. my question for you. This mm-hmm. is this is great. Ars Technica, a great vehicle for you to to use. A very well respected site. You do not work there. We should remind people that you do not work there, but you are paid. I mean, you're going to get paid for this thing as well as well you should. Yes. So here's my question: Have you ever considered, you know, eighty five? When I hear when I heard you say eighty five pages, printed pages. And then I'm thinking about these really awesome, you know, these really awesome books uh, that a, a book apart. My friend Jeffrey Zeldman does this the, this thing, a book apart. And these are like 80 page, 90 page books that teach you about one aspect of of usually it's about web design or you know content. You know, it, it's it's in that design sort of space, usability space. And they they make, I mean, I don't know what the the take at home is on these things. But I'm thinking they make a lot of these books, and they must make good money on them. If you, why not? Why not like self-publish this? This is John Syracuse's Nosy. You know, have a little company, Nosy Incorporated, or whatever it is, and you go and you you sell this thing on your. I'm not saying. It, I mean, no, I know nobody at ours listens to this anyway. But why not? Why not like self-publish this thing? Is it? Is, 
do you just like the setup? Is that sounds like too much work for you? I'm thinking for, self, 80, for do, 80, do you mean to self-publish like like a book apart, like make a printed book? Yeah, like or or just sell it as a PDF that people can download or put it on iBooks or put it on a Kindle or get it out there in the Amazon. You know. Well, so you you know why I wouldn't do it as a printed book because we've talked about. No, I'm not talking about printing. I'm talking ebook. All right, so I'm just I'm just eliminating them one at a time. They would, I would never do a print book because print books are a lot of work. Uh, and if you if you don't self-publish it, you give up a lot of control. And seriously, if you're trying to make money, a technical print book is not the way to do it. Uh, I know a lot of people who do write books, tech books for print, and it's really hard to, I mean, uh, to make to make a living just doing tech books. A lot of people who have made really good livings doing tech books in the 80s and 90s are now having to get other jobs because it's just not lucrative enough anymore. So print on the decline, and I probably wouldn't do it. For a PDF, I don't know. I the the thing with the thing with my reviews is that like i said with the histogram most people don't read all of them it's not it's written to a very narrow audience of other nerds like me who can tolerate this much technical detail on one thing most people will just get bored by it right uh now it's interesting for people like oh this is a big review and maybe someday i'll just look back at this section or maybe i'll get linked to it a year from now and read some little section somewhere uh, but i don't think there's a lot of people who would pay money to download a big honkin pdf and it would be a question at that point whether the PDF version, the bandwidth costs would be recouped from selling it, right? I could probably sell it to fewer people for a higher price if I wanted to do that. Uh, so you've thought about this? No, I'm, I'm just t- addressing your idea right as I, And the thing is, I've never actually considered doing this because I'm not in this for the money. I, ha- I have a relationship with Ars Technica that's like, you know, 10, 12 years long. Maybe they publish. That, maybe you work with them and it's still self-publishing, but no, they, 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 they take, may do that. They, they've done that with some of their more popular articles, like the recent article on the HB Gary security thing. You yeah, remember that? Yeah. They did, they did an ebook version of that. They sold it through Amazon and a bunch of other channels. That, that's, that's tell you what, I'm in, I, tell whoever it is in control over to ours that I'm, I'm in line to buy this thing just to support the work that you do and, and the ours people. Tell them, tell them right now. Ping them right they, now. I, I know you're in the chat room with them. Focus, but I can tell you this, though. Like, back in the day, tell my articles were, were by far the highest traffic thing on Ars Technica. Of course. You carried, you carried that brand for a decade. I carry the brand. But when my articles did come out, that one article had a lot of hits. But that changed dramatically over the past four or five years. So, for example, that H.B. Gary business, those articles did just far and away, like, ten times more than any one of my Mac OS Ten articles did. Because people are interested in news or something or, or a scandal or interesting topics of you know, hackers and, and political drama or stuff like that is more broadly interesting than 85 printed pages on an operating system. People just want to know, should I buy it or not? Let me read the two pages. No, that's not what we want. No, that's not what I want. Uh, and that's not what people listening to this podcast may want. But broadly speaking, that's what people. You know what world- else? If you printed this thing out, as a paper book and signed it, you could just leave some copies in the local bookstore. People yep. would buy those. be great. I'll call them tracks. As someone pointed out in the chat room, if you are an RS Premier member and pay whatever it is, like $50 a year, not only can you get uh, full-page versions of every article, if that's what floats your boat, but again, I would recommend against doing that for a long article like this, 
but you also get the PDF download. So they the do whole, make PDFs of all of my articles and give them for free for people who subscribe for $50 a year. So if you really wanted to think you were buying a PDF, you said you're in line, so great. Pay ours 50 bucks, you get a PDF of my article and every article they produce for an entire year that's long. It's not a bad deal. How much are they sponsoring the show for since you're going on and on about I'm just saying, you asked, you said you were in line to pay for it. You were you ready I'm to in offer? line to pay you for it. I, oh, I mean, well, I'll pay I'll pay ours. I'll, I'll sign up as an R subscriber, I think. It seems like a good value. I mean, but I want I want to make sure that you get a cut of that. That's all. Yeah. Well, you know, that's. I'll, I, I'll take it up with the R's guys offline. If this was my main job, I would be much more aggressive about making sure that I get paid what I think it's worth for it. But this is really just a hobby, and I do it for fun, and, you know. Well, our, your, lo- your loss is our gain. Yeah, and hey, it's available for free to read. If you really want to read this much stuff about Mac OS X, it's there. It's I do. Free. I read every word of it, but I don't click the links because I don't want random Simpsons sound bites. Well, you, if you understand everything that's written, you won't have to click the links. But, well, but I, I never know. If I click a link, it could you take You know, me... if you mouse over it, you can see the URL. I don't like to have to do that. You don't, I don't like to have to read. It's confusing to me. Where will this go? I so can't listen, tell. Here's, this, is, this is my follow-up for your follow-up. I've come to come to find out a little bit about your methods of how uh-huh. you write that you did not detail in the episode about how you write. In your investigative journalism? Uh, you know, I don't like to brag or anything, but yeah. AKA stalking. All right, go ahead. Well, no. So here's the thing. I'm, I wake up early. And when I, you know, I, I start working, you know, I have a cup of coffee. It's time to start work, beginning the day. I'll I'll launch uh, I'll launch the the chat client and look who's there. It's John Syracuse. He's online, and it's early. It seems early for him. So I I pop open window. Hi, John. Oh, this isn't John. This is his wife. Turns out your wife has now been forced to use your computer instead of her own. Why? Because you've taken over her computer to install Lion on that, and then you've actually taken your wife's computer away and she can't even use it for all of these weeks that it takes you to write this article. Explain that. Not all the weeks. Only in the past push have I completely taken it off her desk and put it over here. I have Lion installed on my Mac Pro, but I also have Lion installed on an external hard drive that I boot her thing from. And I like to write on my Mac Pro, but I like to write in my Snow Leopard environment where everything's set up. And then I screen share to her computer, which is running Lion, which is sitting right next to me. Uh, So... I haven't completely taken it away, but definitely in the, in the last crunch. She's, she's not able done. to use it. Yeah. So for, yeah, for at least a week or so, maybe a week, maybe five days, I've had her computer on my desk. But even then, at nighttime, sometimes I will reboot it into Snow Leopard, put it out back on her desk, let her have Oh, how thoughtful of you. Yes. But occasionally, uh, when she wants to use the computer and it's not available, she will just use my computer. Yeah, And that was, that was uh, my day to sleep, by the way. I, I get to sleep in on Saturdays. She gets to sleep in on Sundays. That was actually several days in that, a row. That was Monday. I know because Sunday I got up with the kids. Monday she did and Saturday I did. So she was nice and gave me two days this weekend because I've been up late writing. Despite Uh, the fact that you've commandeered her computer, she still does this. Wonderful woman. Yes. Uh, And someone in the chat room asked if I tried virtualizing Lion. Yes, I did get Lion running in VMware using some instructions found on the web that were a little bit complicated, but it does work. But once you get Lion in VMware, so I had Lion in three places. I had it on my Mac Pro, in VMware, on my Mac Pro, and also on the, uh, the MacBook Pro. Uh, in VMware, it works, but there are things that are buggy, like resolution changing doesn't work that great. Uh, the shared folders business and the VMware tools that try to integrate your mouse and, and your hardware don't work that great. Lots of bugs in there, but it works well enough for me to... I was using that for a while 
when I wasn't stealing her laptop. So that basically I had it installed on VMware. So I had it in self-contained my writing environment the way I wanted it. The other thing is that I do my images in Photoshop. So I had Photoshop on, you know, to on my Mac in Snow Leopard. I can't run the version of Photoshop I have in Lion because it's a PowerPC version. And I don't really want to spend whatever it is, 400 bucks for an Intel native version of Photoshop when I use it like once every two years to do screenshots. It's really overkill. Yeah. But I, I do like Photoshop. Uh, so that's why I was doing everything in Snow Leopard. And yes, you caught my wife many times with your typical random messages in the morning. Uh, sometimes it wasn't even in the morning. Sometimes she was just using the computer and I was She's great. To t- way better to talk to than, than the, the regular John. Yeah. She have long conversations. I'll go back through the chat logs. Yeah, go look at the logs. I recommend it. I, I suspect there's three obscure sentences from no, you. No, there's full on, full real human being oh, conversations. So, oh, so she gets full sentences. Huh? Oh yeah, but, she gets the whole thing. We talked about, you know, I, I won't go into the full details, but we we reminisced about certain neighborhoods in in Boston and and surrounding areas, and cost of living, and moving, uh, the the building where you work now that uh, both my aunt and my granddad worked in, and I almost worked in. We won't name it because we don't want you know people are creepy and we don't want them, like stalking you. We already talked about that building. Yeah, I but I, I hadn't had a chance to talk to your wife about it, and we did, and it was great. A wonderful woman. How does she deal with you? I'm a dream. <laughs> There's a show title right there. No. So, uh, but that is, that, all, that's it. Do we have a topic? I think we're done. You think we're done with the whole show? Yeah, I mean, look, we've been doing the 67 minutes. People are getting what they paid for if we go over an hour. All right. I mean, I did have uh, another topic. We could save it for another show. Someone in the chat room brought this up. I'll just tease it again. Tease so it. maybe we can do a next show. Is uh, we, we meant to talk about this a while ago. Remember, I... I through some offhand comment about Markdown in a past show, and people oh, want to hear yeah. me talk about Markdown. So I will talk about Markdown. You don't use Markdown. You use Textile. Yeah. No. I, well, I'll talk about Markdown and my views on it in a future episode. It can't do tables. That's why you don't use it. And we did. This was a, completely a follow-up episode. We followed up on... Yeah, it's so right. next episode, Markdown. Oh, well, you know, depends on when Line is released, because when Line is released, we will spend... Probably multiple episodes, much to the chagrin of everybody, just talking about my stupid review that you didn't read because it's too long. Not you, Dan, because you said you're going to read it. No, I do. I, I said I'd, I'd I go understand. to a coffee shop and I prop the thing up. I get to a big, tall cup of coffee, which you need. you got to stay awake for the whole thing. And you just take it and read. You read 85 pages, one sitting. Then you get yeah. all excited. Then you run home and you install it. Or you install it first and you say, I don't know what's going on here. And then you read it and then you realize all these, these cool things. So here's a... Let me just throw this out. We'll end on this note. Okay. For those in the audience, I, I suspect that there are many. For those people in the audience who are legitimate Apple developers, Mac developers, and have a licensed, legit copy of Lion, which everybody knows has been released as the Gold Master, the GM, do you recommend that they install this on their primary machines as of today? Which is uh, July sixth, two thousand eleven. Well, they released what yes they call no. a, GM, a GM seed. So I would say no because there's no guarantee that what they have released as a GM seed will be declared the official GM. Their nomenclature sucks on this. They used to have a thing called RC, which is a release candidate, and that was understood that the any one of these RCs could be declared the GM. But until any one of them was, 
you weren't sure if it would be. So they'd release RC1 and they'd find some bugs and they'd say, okay, we need an RC2 and eventually keep going and they release RC3, 4. And so maybe around 4, they say, okay, RC4, we found no showstopper bugs. RC4 is being declared the DM and they the GM and they make a separate release with the Golden Master, which is identical to RC4, except maybe some version numbers tweaked or, you know, whatever. Uh, but then they changed recently to doing GM seeds, where I guess I'm assuming it's psychological where they want to scare developers into making sure their applications work. You know what I mean? Because yeah. once you see GM, you're like, oh my God, now I really, because if you see RC, you're like, yeah, I'll wait a little while, I'll make sure my app works later. But once you see those GM letters, because of the history of what that term meant, you'll say, oh, I better make sure my application works on this because this is the GM seed or something. And I think with Xcode, they had like four GM seeds. They just had to keep going around because, oh, we found another showstopper bug. Okay, how about this GM? How about so, this GM? So you're saying, just for clarity's sake, you're saying that this is a GM, Goldmaster, for those who don't know what that means, uh, you're saying, do not install this current GM that is out as of July 6th because you suspect that it is not going to actually be the release candidate. So I, I, I give it a 50-50 shot of being the actual release, but I would say since there's no good way to revert except for whiting, wiping your whole disk and reinstalling or restoring from a backup, don't install anything that is not declared the official retail golden master release of this and now this if, thing is not it's called the gm seed or something now if you do install this or you install one of the subsequent gm seeds over the next few days or week whatever do you know if you'll be able to use software update at that point to get whatever the latest and greatest so if i install one of these gms and then the a legitimate full-fledged version comes out can i do a software update to that or do i need to do a reinstall again you will almost certainly not be able to do software upgrade from anything that is prior to the official retail release to a retail release. I don't think that has ever worked. Uh, the only thing software update will upgrade is the retail release and subsequent versions, not any of the RCs or anything like that. Good to know. Very good to know. Yeah. So, And I would say... I'm, when, I'm hearing a release date to, of, of next week. I'm hearing the 12th now. That's what a I, little bird told me. I'm trying not to pay attention to rumors. I just wanted this thing to be completely edited and in the CMS, and then I can just stew and wait patiently. Right. And I'll be out of town this weekend, so hopefully it won't happen then. But. Well, here's the thing. If, if it does come out on the 12th of next week, which is Tuesday, that means we will be able to talk about it uh, when we do the show on Wednesday of next week. That's yes. my hope. Now, if not, if not, then we will be forced to have another topic. Oh, Markdown. We could talk about Markdown. We'll talk about Markdown. And, and various other follow-up things and whatever else anyone writes in about. But eventually we will talk about Line, and it may be multiple shows because there's lots of topics in there. You can block out a nice six-month period to just, we'll do one page at a time. Dramatic reading. Article. Yeah, I'll read yeah. it. You know what? That would be fun. Maybe I could do a dramatic reading. It would not article. be fun because you read my, what I wrote out loud and it just reveals how bad my writing is. It's very... What if I re read it in, the, in your voice, in the Squidward voice? My voice is the Kermit voice or the Ray Romano voice. You you really need to... You need to actually just watch Spongebob and you'll know that you sound like Squidward. Well, apparently, I my voice doesn't sound like him. Kermit the Frog and Ray Romano is the popular consensus on what my voice sounds like. Now, what I say may remind you of the Squidward character, but since I do not watch Spongebob, I really don't know who you're talking about. All right, that's all right. I will, I will leave it for as an exercise to the listener to determine... Whether John sounds more like Squidward or one of these other characters, and voice-wise, or what I say, both, both, both in all right. in concert. Okay, 
All right, well, listen, let's hope that it does come out. Let's cross our fingers and hope it comes out on the 12th so we have something really cool to talk about. And if not, we'll talk. Uh, Markdown's pretty cool, too, and, and why you do or don't use it. So have a good week, John. Have a great uh, little vacation, too. I will. Take care. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Hypercritical. Really appreciate all of you listening and tuning in. Uh, you can go to 5x5.tv to hear uh, all of our other shows, older episodes of this show, and pretty much everything else that we're doing. It's the place to go. And if you like the show, rate it on iTunes. It's the best way to help new people find out about it. It, it, it helps us in, in the rankings. Uh, it helps new sponsors find out about the show so we can keep going and keep doing it and uh, again huge thanks to everybody who has donated uh, it really 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 helps uh, you can go to 5x5.tv slash donate to do that and uh, that's about it we will be back next week thank you so much for tuning in mm-hmm.